Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Well, you know I have boundless enthusiasm for all of our speakers, but really I'm very, very, truly uh, excited about our next presenter. Um, I think uh, Dr. Vinay Lal was probably the first person that we reached out to when we were starting to construct the day today, and we're so grateful to have him coming back to Opera for Educators. Uh, Dr. Lal is one of those great thinkers who connects the dots. Uh, he is, of course, a professor at UCLA, um, but has connects literature and religion and popular culture and philosophy all together and, uh, and makes us all feel wiser for it. Uh, probably of his many, many publications, the one I'm uh, I, I just adore the title uh, of, and that this really is an indication of the way he thinks. It's in t one of his probably most famous publications of Cricket, Guinness, and Gandhi, Essays in Indian History and Culture, um, published in 2005. I'm really especially uh, grateful to Dr. Lal because um, we went chasing after him, and I have a special note, which is, if you have tickets or if you attend to perform, uh, come to the November 4th performance, the Sunday matinee, November 4th, we will have Dr. Lal that day with us for a special post-performance conversation in Stern Grand Hall with Grant Gershon. So don't miss it. So if you're, if you're, if you're thinking about buying tickets, I might encourage you to look at that date because that'll be a, a especially wonderful one. So really, let me, without further ado, give the mic over with a round of applause to Dr. Vinay Lal. Well, uh, thank you very much for that uh, generous introduction and my uh, thanks to the LA Opera for uh, inviting me back. It was a pleasure to be here last year and uh, similarly this year. Uh, so uh, by way of preface, let me just say two things. Uh, the first is that uh, I will not be discussing uh, for the simple reason that there are people who are far more qualified than I am to discuss the musical aspects of the opera and the staging and all of that. Uh, uh, that is not really my forte, so I'm going to leave it to others to do that. Uh, and secondly, um, I teach a full-length course, a quarter-length course on Gandhi, so that's about 30 times the length of what you're going to be hearing uh, today. Uh, and that itself is a minuscule portion of what one could really do. Uh, so at the end of this talk, you will see a couple of, you'll see a slide with some websites for further resources because uh, I'm going to try not to rush through the presentation, uh, but uh, we have to keep in mind that we are dealing here with an epic life, and an epic life in every sense of the term. Uh, most people know Gandhi as a man of action, so to speak. Well, his collected writings run to 98 volumes, each of them a hefty 40, 50, uh, 400, 500 pages. All right. I mean, he founded and edited four newspapers in his lifetime, for example. All right. Uh, so so uh, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to be brief but illustrative and suggestive because that seems to me to be the best approach that one could follow for the present. Um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to divide my remarks into five, albeit not equal, portions. Uh, one is to give you a very brief overview, uh, only to the extent that it is necessary to understand some of the other points that I want to make of his life, uh, dwelling on what I call the ordinariness of the extraordinary, because uh, we have to remember that Gandhi was born in very humble circumstances. Uh, he wasn't born to greatness, so to speak, necessarily. Right? Uh, secondly, I want to sort of look at the birth of Satyagraha, which is, of course, Satyagraha is the title of the opera as well. Uh, what this term means, what are the components of it, uh, and what are some of the principal allied issues when we think about Satyagraha. Uh, the third, which is related to the second, but should be looked at rather discreetly, and, those are the, and that is the whole question of what are the philosophical foundations of Satyagraha and the idea of nonviolence. Uh, fourthly, something that will be obscure to you at the moment, what I'm calling the portability of Gandhi. 
Uh, and fifthly, the global history of nonviolence, because this talk is called Gandhi Satyagraha and the Global Histories of Nonviolence. I would remind you that the third act of the opera is called King, Martin Luther King. So the first act is uh, Tolstoy, the second act is Rabindranath Tagore, uh, and the opera is set entirely in South Africa. It's not set in India at all. And South Africa is, of course, where Gandhi spent uh, a good 20 years of his formative life before he moved back to India in early January 1915, never to return to South Africa again. Uh, and so that's sort of a brief overview of how I'm going to proceed for the today. Uh, uh, I just wanted to begin by talking to you a little bit about his birth and the fact that he is a Gujarati. Now this is very important. Okay, uh, because to most people in this country, an Indian is an Indian. Well, I can tell you that there are, as there are many kinds of Americans, but the differences are nothing as sharp as they are in India, because you're speaking about an extraordinary linguistic diversity. I mean, the census of India has recorded over a thousand languages, and this is notwithstanding the fact that many have been lost in the last 50 years, you know, all right? So Gandhi comes from, this, from Western India, from Gujarat. He's a Gujarati. He's born in Porbandar. This photograph is taken in Porbandar, right outside his birthplace. That's a statue of Gandhi that you see right there. Um, and it's a port. So it was looking out to the sea. The Gujaratis are an eminently diasporic people. They have been traveling all over the Indian Ocean world for a thousand years for a thousand years. You couldn't walk into a port in the o Indian Ocean 400, 500, 600 years ago and not run into a Gujarati, right? So, so he, it's a very mercantile people and ports tend to be much more cosmopolitan anyhow. So that gives us some clues about the place where he was born, the kind of man he is, right? And Gujarat was an extraordinarily mixed and cosmopolitan place in itself. And this is the birthplace of Gandhi within, which is just a couple of, couple of, you know, 50 meters, 100 meters from the statue that you saw. Uh, and this is the school that he went to. So his local schooling was uh, in the, his schooling, early schooling was in the area. Uh, not, not most of it in Porbandar. It, it was in an adjoining big town called Rajkot. And then from Rajkot, he went on eventually to England, which is where he became credentialed as a lawyer. Right? Uh, and this is the plaque that you see at the school there where you can see on the third line of it, it mentions, uh, you know, where is it? It's a little bit, can, can you see at all? No, okay, yeah, it didn't, it didn't look like you could because I can barely make it out over here. Uh, but anyhow, so uh, it, it's not really critical. So now, uh, uh, let, us, let us look at the larger backdrop to Gandhi first. Gandhi's born in 1869, October 2nd. And India was under colonial rule. However, only two-thirds of India was being ruled directly by the British, right? So you have to make a distinction between what is called British India and the native states. There were over 500 such native states. It's a very complicated history. It suffices for the moment to simply say this, that native states were states and Gandhi is born in one of these states, native states, which is why the distinction is important. Where the British writ ran large, as it did, of course, in British India, except that there was a certain degree of limited sovereignty, not real sovereignty, because these native states could not conduct foreign relations, uh, 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 relations with foreign powers, uh, could not enter into diplomatic agreements, so forth and so on. He's born into one of these native states, um, but it did mean that the British presence was slightly less oppressive there than it might have been in British India. Now, the culture and religious milieu of Gujarat is again exceedingly important. Uh, each of these is a book in itself, Jainism. It's a, it's a religion. Half the world's religions, by the way, are founded in India. Uh, Jainism is one of these religions. It's followed by a relatively smaller number of people, but, but one of the principal things about the Jains is, at least in principle, their adherence to the idea of ahimsa, non-violence. So for example, Jains do not pursue agriculture. 
Because if you pursue agriculture, you dig the soil, you might end up killing, as you will, invariably, a worm, ants, insects. Right? So they do not pursue agriculture. Right? He grew up in a part of India which was heavily under the influence of what is called Vaishnava uh, theology. So Vaishnava theology is a branch of what is called Hinduism, where again the idea of bhakti, that is love, compassion, was actually quite critical. Because if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, I bring in the Bhagavad Gita at this juncture because the libretto of Satyagraha is in part based on that. The opening scene is actually based on a scene from the Bhagavad Gita. Right? So the Bhagavad Gita is a second century text. And in the Gita, Krishna is giving his teachings to his protege, as it were. And he says that one of the paths in which you can, through which you can achieve salvation, or if I may use a less Christian term, emancipation, right? Spiritual emancipation is the way of love, bhakti, as opposed to the way of works. Think about Luther, for example, you know, in the, in, in the context of the West, right? There are different ways. One is through knowledge. One is through works, through action. One is through bhakti. Love, devotion. Vaishnavas, Vaishnava theology was, was a theology that was very heavily saturated with the idea of bhakti. The influence of his mother was formative. His mother was a very devout Hindu, but like many Hindus of her time, her religious practices were somewhat ecumenical. All right, um, and, here, and here again, this is what I meant that this is a minuscule portion because of course you could logically ask yourself in what sense were they ecumenical, but that would be another long story, right? Uh, and yet, even though I am in some ways suggesting the singularity of Gujarat, the place where he was born, bhakti had pan-Indian traditions. They were pan-Indian traditions of bhakti in various guises, in various forms, and so on. And as I mentioned to you already, Gandhi is born in Porbandar, and I've tried to suggest the significance of the fact that he's a Gujarati. Now, he goes to England, and he gets credentialed in law, he comes back to India, and then he goes to South Africa. All right? Um, you can pursue all of these details, obviously, in the biographies, but I think that since this opera is set in South Africa, the setting in South Africa, it is crucial that we spend a good deal of time on what Gandhi was doing in South Africa. And South Africa is the birthplace of Satyagraha. Nelson Mandela said a few years before his death that India sent us Mohan, his Gandhi's full name is Mohan Das Karamchand Gandhi. India sent us Mohan, we sent back a Mahatma, right? Because that was the birthplace, South Africa of the whole idea of non-violent resistance, right? So in South Africa, he encounters Christians, among many others, naturally. South Africa was, if you, if you look at the, do, the dominant white population, of course, it was predominantly Christian. Uh, and here again, there are all kinds of subtleties because they were Boers, they were English, rather different from each other in many respects, and the kinds of Christianity that they subscribed to were quite different. Uh, he, Gandhi came in touch with a great many Christian missionaries and virtually all of these missionaries concluded after having spent some time with Gandhi that it was impossible to convert Gandhi to Christianity because he was a much better Christian than any Christian they had ever met. <laughs> right? this, is, this was the conclusion of virtually every missionary who came into contact with Gandhi. Right? Now, in London and in South Africa, he became aware of a different West. Let me dwell on that point at some length, because we will not understand the ramifications of his encounter with Tolstoy, for example, or Ruskin, or Emerson, or Thoreau, right? Unless we begin to understand what I mean by the other West. India is under colonial rule. That is true of virtually all of Asia and Africa by the late 19th century, barring a couple of spots here and there. In brief, Gandhi's 
view was that colonial powers have to first colonize their own peoples before they colonize others. For example, they colonize their women. They colonize their working classes. The English colonized the Scots, the Irish, the Welsh. They brutalized the Irish, in fact. All right? You have to do that. Now, Gandhi's view, however, is that if we set up a distinction between the West, which is irredeemable, from that point of view then, if you say, well, it's a history of oppression, right? Gandhi's view is that no, freedom is indivisible. That it is not possible for me to be free if you are not free. No one is free unless everyone is truly free. So therefore, in order to recuperate the possibilities of the idea of the indivisibility of freedom, what he has to do is he has to find what he considers to be histories within the West that were marginalized, groups that within the West that were marginalized. Why did the West marginalize some of its greatest thinkers? Henry David Thoreau, for example, within 20 years of his death, was being dismissed in the US simply as a crank. Some guy who had gone to live in Walden Pond for two years and was coming back every weekend to eat his mother's cookies. <laughs> so what kind of organic great intellectual was he? That was, the, that was the way in which Thoreau was simply dismissed. You see, all right? Tolstoy is the most dramatic example because for those of you who know the history of Tolstoy's thought, you know that you can think of two Tolstoys. You can think of the early Tolstoy and then you can think of the later Tolstoy. So the early Tolstoy is, of course, a Tolstoy that, the, that is celebrated. The author of War and Peace, Anna Karenina, all of the great works. But Tolstoy repudiated virtually everything he had written later on in his life because he turned towards a strand of radical anarchist Christianity. He was the great patron of the Dukobors. Dukobors is a radical Russian sect which was being persecuted by the Tsar and most of them fled to Canada eventually, you know, right? Uh, every year, even today, they prepare a bonfire of guns. So they are, they are, they are committed to radical nonviolence as well. Uh, of course, it's ironical, you prepare a bonfire of guns, <laughs> right? right? But the point is that this is the Tolstoy who wrote a book called The Kingdom of God is Within You. Because what Tolstoy was trying to suggest is that there's virtually no congruence between the teachings of Christ and what is called Christianity. The two are radically different. So he engages with the West, but his engagement is with the dissenting intellectuals of the West. Tolstoy, Ruskin, right? Emerson, Thoreau, Edward Carpenter. So if you look at this little tract, which is really one of the fundamental tracks of world history, a little book he wrote called Hind Swaraj, or Indian Home Rule in 1909. And then if you turn to the back of this tract, you find he gives you a list of authorities, people you should, root, people you should read. This is a thoroughgoing critique of industrial modernity, this book. And yet virtually all the authorities are Western. Right? But there are people like Ruskin, Thoreau, Emerson, Carpenter, and so on. It is also in England initially that he first met people like the Theosophists and vegetarians. Gandhi was a vegetarian right from the outset. I mean, he, he ate meat once, and he tells you in his autobiography he heard the goat bleating inside him all night long. You know, right? But his vegetarianism in India was habitual instinctive what he had inherited. He hadn't reasoned about it. He hadn't developed an ethical, political, philosophical argument about vegetarianism. When he met vegetarians in England, there were very few. In England, it was almost impossible then to get a vegetarian meal, right? So it's again, irony upon irony. Here you have Gandhi coming from a country that was largely vegetarian, his part of India, and he goes to England, encounters a few vegetarians there, and then develops a reason critique, okay, an understanding 
of vegetarianism. Right? This, so this is what we're speaking about when we're speaking about the formation of someone called Mohandas Gandhi. And one of the things that he learned, you can, uh, well, I'm not gonna have time to go through all of this, but one of the things he learned from his mother was the importance of vows. Vows. It's almost an archaic word in the English language today. You know, who takes vows? Yes, they're marriage vows, I know that, right? But, but the, what we are speaking about, a person giving a vow to his mother. So when he went to England to study, his, his mother said, you can't go, you're going to, this is an infringement of uh, our practices, our caste practices in our community. We don't travel overseas, you get contaminated. So he had to give a vow to his mother that he would never touch wine, women, or flesh when he went to England. That was a vow. A vow is a promise. And a promise is the foundation of all human relations, tacitly or otherwise. But in Jaina thinking in particular, there was an extraordinary importance on these vows and the importance of keeping vows. Now the Jaina monk, Jaina is, remember that religion of Jainism, right? So a Jaina monk, for example, had to undertake five vows. Well, the vow of Ahimsa, which is non-violence, no harm to any living being, satya. That is one of the words which is the root word of satyagraha, satya, truth. All right? And let me dwell on that a bit more. Because the root of satyagraha itself is, if you break it down further, the root is sat, S-A-T, being, being. Right? As in the philosophy of being, as opposed to becoming. Now, what is the significance of this? The significance of this is, if you think about satyagraha, so it's satya plus agraha. Agraha means force. Right? So very often when you read the literature on Gandhi, what is the translation that is given of satyagraha? Truth force or soul force, right? But what does that really mean? How do you use truth force, right? So Gandhi's view is that if we understand the roots of this word, it will give us some enlightenment about why truth force means something. Because the word sat is both truth and being. So when I confront my opponent with satyagra, I am confronting him not simply with some general truth, I'm confronting him or her with the truth of his or her own being. Right? Which is to say that Gandhi said that if you, that every time you offer satyagra and if it fails, the problem is not with Satyagra, the problem is with your application of it. That the proper application of Satyagra can never fail. Never. This is a science as much as anything you have learned by reading Einstein. This is what Gandhi was aiming at when he developed a whole doctrine of the idea of Satyagra. But there are other vows which are related. I will return to Satyagra in just a moment. Asitya, which is non-stealing, to take nothing that is not properly given. Gandhi's view is radical because by his definition, incidentally, we are all thieves, all of us. The reason we are is if you ever use anything, if you ever have possession of anything that you truly do not need, it means you have actually committed theft. You know, right? Brahmacharya, celibacy. Renunciation of sexual, sensual pleasures, but brahmacharya means approximation to God. It's not just celibacy. The brahmacharya is the, the, the brahmachari is the person who seeks to get closer to God, approximate God. And aparigraha, non-attachment, non-possession. The cultivation of the whole idea and ethos of detachment, right? Uh, we're going to have to omit this in the interest of time, uh, but this is a further elaboration of some of the doctrines of Jainism. And let me now reiterate what I have said and flesh it out a bit more before moving to the next part of the presentation today. 
we can think of the elements of a Gandhian grammar. So Satyagraha is like a language, and a language has roots, right? A grammar has roots. So these are the elements of this grammar, the idea of Satya, which is truth from the notion of Sat to be, Ahimsa, and I need to say a few things about Ahimsa. Ahimsa is not simply the absence of violence. Because if that was the case, all of us sitting in this room at this moment would be perfect models of Ahimsa. No. It is not simply the absence of violence. One of the problems, and it is an enormous problem, frankly, right? almost insuperable, is that in the English language, the negative, you have violence and then you have non-violence. You have compliance, non-compliance. Cooperation, non-cooperation. The negative, there is a fear and dread of the negative. But the negative in Sanskrit does not carry the same load at all. Because in Sanskrit also, when I, the word that I've said, ahimsa, right? So the word himsa without the a uh or a in the beginning means violence. And so you would say, well, Sanskrit is operating exactly the same way that the English language is. Not quite. Because if you look at the language, and the way the negative works, it is dramatically different than how it works in the English language. That is that the idea of violence has in Western thought, given the very nature of language, it has an ontological precedence over the idea of nonviolence. Right? Nonviolence is simply the negation of violence, which means that it gives Ontological precedence. You need violence before you can even define non-violence. That is the fundamental problem. All right? So this elements of a Gandhian grammar, I use a Sanskrit term, therefore, is ahimsa, satya, dharma. Dharma is what? Morality, conduct, conduct, law. But let me elaborate very quickly. It is not simply the case that every human being has a dharma. Dharma is to follow the law of one's being. To follow the law of one's being. Every living creature has its dharma. What is the dharma of a dog? The dharma of a dog is to bark. <laughs> and so if you get woken up at 2 a.m. by the barking of a dog, do not get distressed because a dog is following its dharma. What is the dharma of a snake? It is to hiss. It is to hiss. You have as an individual your own dharma. You also have the dharma of a community, of a collective. Right? Then of course brahmacharya, which I've already described very briefly. Tapasya, the idea of self-realization. Right? Sacrifice. We cannot understand Martin Luther King as well, unless we start thinking about the idea of sacrifice. Right? Okay? And aparigra, which as I've already said, is non-possession. Right? And I do think that if we're going to come to an understanding of Gandhi, we will have to constantly dwell on both ahimsa and satya. Both of these, all right? So I've given you a definition of ahimsa. The only other thing I need to add at this particular juncture is that we should not confuse non-violent resistance with passive resistance. The two are entirely different, entirely different. Gandhi was adamant on that. Martin Luther King was adamant on that point, right? There is nothing passive at all about non-violence, right? And of course, we can, we can get into a complicated hermeneutics to see whether, for example, the Sermon on the Mount is really an argument for pacifism or an argument for non-violence, 
right? Particularly, I'm thinking of the Sermon on the Mount, although you could look, you know, even at portions of Corinthians, Paul, other portions of the New Testament, which have something to say about these matters. Now, why was, what were Gandhi's arguments against violence? Very briefly. First is the ontological argument. Every man has a spark of divinity within him. So does Donald Trump. <laughs> Whether one likes to think of it or not, right? From that point of view, I will remind you that in 1940, Gandhi writes a letter to Adolf Hitler. And it begins with the salutation, dear friend. Because Gandhi's view, let me encapsulate it. He doesn't say it. I have encapsulated after hundreds and thousand hours of reading. What is his view? A man's acts might be monstrous, but a man is not a monster. There's a distinction between the two. Right? But he does have this view. There is every person has the spark of divinity. If you use violence, you have negated that idea. Epistemological argument, man is not in possession of the absolute truth, which is one reason why, of course, Gandhi was irrevocably opposed to the idea of capital punishment. Because it's not simply that, well, the DNA test might show there was nothing about DNA when he was thinking about these things and no one really knew much. Rather, the idea simply is this, that when you commit violence, you are indicating that you are in possession of the truth, right? Your, your version of that story or that narrative is the ultimate story, right? And so long as we admit the idea of fallibility, we cannot entertain the idea of violence. Pragmatic argument against violence. Violence doesn't actually produce results. It doesn't. Uh, there was an American wit who said that, you know, you try nonviolence for a week and then you give it, give it up and say it doesn't work. Well, we've tried violence for 3,000 years and somehow we still keep on persisting with it. You know, right? it simply doesn't produce the results, right? And then finally, Gandhi has a moral argument against violence, which is that it creates a split between mind and heart, between cognition, thought, and feeling. Right? So this is, in a sense, the gist of Gandhi's thinking about the idea of nonviolence, right? And it needs to be said, of course, that the idea of nonviolence is much greater than the idea of nonviolent resistance. Nonviolent resistance is a subset of that. To lead a life of nonviolence is to understand first and foremost one's own dharma in this world, understand the law of one's being, as it were, right? And let that shape everything. And I'll give you one small anecdote. The, this, from this epic life, there are a million anecdotes. I'll give you one small anecdote. Gandhi always used a pencil, a lead pencil for writing, almost invariably. And until it was down to a little stub, he never threw it away. Now, one, of, one day, shortly, three, four years before his death, uh, the pencil had been put on his desk so that he could start writing his morning letters at 4 a.m. And he found that it hadn't been sharpened properly. The edges were, you know, rough. So he immediately summoned a meeting of the entire ashram and said, who sharpened my pencil today? And Manu, his grandniece, said, I did. And he said, Manu, were you angry at the time that you were sharpening the pencil? And she is flabbergasted. She said, yes, I was in a distressed state of mind. And he said, it shows in the way in which you sharpen the pencil. Your mind was not attuned to ahimsa. This is an act of violence. Idea of ahimsa as embodied in the life of Gandhi is an epic of a different sort. Satyagraha 
is an element of it. It is a strategy to create conditions of social equality, to produce the field for social justice, right? But nonviolence is bigger than simply nonviolent resistance, all right? Now, Gandhi went to South Africa. As I've mentioned to you, this is a small map of South Africa. Um, there was, South Africa was not the union of South Africa at that point in time. There was, there was a Transvaal, there was a, uh, you know, the Cape Colony, there was Natal, all of that. A complicated history, which I cannot really get into, uh, because I really need to get into uh, the last portion of my talk. But it is in South Africa that he pioneered the strategy of non-violent resistance. Indians had been there for some period of time. There were two kinds of Indians. They were what were called the indentured laborers. The indentured laborers. So, you know, uh, after the abolition of slavery in 1835 um, in the British Empire, uh, the problem for uh, plantation owners in places like Natal in South Africa, or Trinidad, or Guyana, or Suriname, or Fiji, Right? These are all sugar colonies. The problem was you needed labor after the abolition of slavery. Right? So to cut a long story short, labor was imported from India. These people were called indentured laborers. They worked under very difficult conditions. And a great number of Indians arrived in Natal in 1860 as indentured laborers and the years thereafter. There were also some Indians who were in South Africa called passenger Indians as opposed to coolie Indians. Coolie Indians were the indentured laborers. Passenger Indians were those who came on their own passage. They came as merchants, for example. And in fact, Gandhi arrived in South Africa to work for a merchant who had the need for legal services. That's how Gandhi arrived in South Africa, right? Uh, in 1891, and this is, this is now the Union of South Africa. This is after South, Af after South Africa had been forged together as a nation uh, in the early 1900s. This is the first article on the arrival of the coolies. It says the coolies here from the Natal Mercury in 1860. Uh, and this slide I'm showing to you because every coolie, a pejorative word, of course, right? Uh, every indentured laborer who came was simply given a number, right? This was a new form of slavery, effectively, right? Because the first thing you do when you create the institution of slavery or something akin to it is you strip a person of their name, of their name, right? And, and that's, of course, one reason why Malcolm is Malcolm X. It's the unknown factor, right? Who, what was the name of his ancestors, so forth and so on. Right? So you simply become a statistic. You become a statistic. That's what these, that's, this is a photograph of indentured laborers photographed shortly after their arrival and a number is given. And why is this also important in the context of what I am speaking? Because it is precisely these kinds of Indians along with the pass passenger Indians that Gandhi had to deal with when he came to South Africa. And when he arrived in South Africa, he found that the Indians were without rights, right? They had to pay a poll tax, a very large poll tax, right? They had, of course, no representation. In fact, shortly before Gandhi left South Africa, all Indian marriages were declared invalid in South Africa, which meant that, that as Gandhi protested, he said that, well, basically what it does is it turns every man's wife into a prostitute. You know, they were all declared invalid. There were restrictions on their mobility. There were restrictions on where they could purchase property, if at all they could purchase property, so forth and so on, right? And this is the struggle that Gandhi had to wage in South Africa, and this is where he eventually pioneered the strategies, as I've said, of Satyagraha. Now we're not going to, we cannot go through systematically what does it mean to offer, not in philosophical terms. Because I've given you an account of what it means to offer Satyagraha in philosophical terms. But let us not forget that the civil rights movement in the United States, and of course what Gandhi did in South Africa and India, right? Or what Chavez did with the workers here, right? When he led the strike, you know, the grape boycott, right? That satyagraha is a systematic process. If I may say so, you may not like what I'm going to say here necessarily, 
But for example, the people who were present last week in Washington, D.C., when Kavanaugh was being nominated, and I thoroughly oppose everything he stands for, I can tell you that, but the people who were shouting, yelling, all of that, this is not nonviolent protest. No person I know who has studied the history of nonviolent resistance would consider that a nonviolent struggle. And this is why I insist that nonviolence is not simply the absence of violence. There is a whole process involved. There is a way in which one goes about creating a nonviolent struggle. And this is exactly what the architects of the civil rights movement, Bayard Rustin, Reverend James Lawson, who lives here in Los Angeles, right? And James Farmer and Martin Luther King understood. If you follow exactly what they did beginning with the Montgomery bus boycott in the mid-1950s, all right? So there were all these grievances. This is the young Gandhi. He has taken off the dress of a Western lawyer by this time. But, but this was not the garb he was going to wear towards the last 30, 40 years of his life. As I say very often of Gandhi, uh, he's the one person in history who began his adult life vastly overdressed because he went to England. He got himself you know, a coat, hat, tie, all of that. Uh, began his adult life vastly overdressed and ended it vastly underdressed. Uh, if you know how he was dressed. You can write a sartorial biography of Gandhi uh, easily. Now, that brings me to the last portion of my remarks today. Because the third act is called Martin Luther King, right? And I have already adverted to the civil rights movement on a number of, of occasions, which is the question of the portability of Gandhi. Let me try to first explain the idea of portability. Some ideas, theories, objects are portable, others are not. Coca-Cola is completely portable. Coca-Cola is Coca-Cola no matter where you go, whether it's Botswana or Bangladesh or South Dakota. <laughs> it is completely portable. The novel is a genre of literature which is portable but with modification. I'm also a student of literature. My first degree was in literature. If you study the history of the novel in India, okay, in Eastern Europe, in Latin America, every major language, they have adapted the novel as a genre, but they greatly modified it. It is portable, but you have to do things with it. And then there may be things that are not portable. The kind of institutions associated with Western democracy may not necessarily be portable. The Bush administration didn't understand that, of course, because they don't understand what portability really means. But, but that, has been the, that has been the problem in trying to export certain things which may not be. That's not because the people there are not ready for democracy, but they're not just, they're not. The question is whether this kind of democracy is portable or not, okay? And so one of the things that we have to logically ask ourselves is, what is portable and what is not portable in Gandhi's thinking? Gandhi was also a ferocious, I use that word in a loaded fashion because I'm not sure that the word really works with Gandhi vis-a-vis -vis anything. But he was a ferocious critic of Western industrial modernity, right? And it is very interesting that if you look at resistance movements, nonviolent resistance movements around the world, many of them have not touched upon that at all. Because what did they do? They simply took Gandhi's ideas of Satyagraha and turned the idea of nonviolent resistance into a technique. A technique. You know, all you have to do is replicate the technique, right? 
So what was portable was simply that, but many of Gandhi's ideas were not portable. The Reverend James Lawson, who's a very good friend of mine, and you know, turned 90, he's one of the principal architects of the civil rights movement in the US. He's the one who authored the National Sit-ins, if you don't know, okay, right? So I was talking to him and I said, you know, one thing I've looked at is the writings of all the major figures in the civil rights movement and looked at their lives. They followed Gandhi every step of the way, except for one thing, other than the critique of industrial modernity, which many of them did not necessarily share, right? I'm speaking simply about even the portability of Satyagraha as a technique. What is it that they did not follow? No civil rights leader used political fasting, none. Martin Luther King never went on a fast. Neither did James Farmer, neither did James Lawson nor Bayard Rustin. But for Gandhi, this was the most potent tool in the arsenal of Satyagraha. The last thing you did, you tried everything else and when nothing else worked, you went on a fast, right? So if the idea of fasting is not portable in the same way, I'm trying to suggest to you, but the critique of consumption, for example, is that one of the things that Gandhi insisted upon was the idea of ecological thinking. I mean, he, he invented the idea of recycling before the term was born in the English language. You know, the letters that he received, the envelopes, he would, he would take down notes on the envelopes. If you go to the archive, you can see them. Nothing was ever wasted. He invented recycling, as it were. He had a critique of this idea of consumption which is devouring us, you know, right? And this idea of consumption is portable. There are people who understand the perils and hazards of this culture of consumption in which we live, right? So what I've suggested to you is that when you're looking at King, you're looking at all of that, we have to think about what is portable in Gandhi's ideas as a whole. What is portable then, secondly, within the idea of nonviolence, And thirdly, within this very limited framework of Satyagraha as a technique, right? What is portable there and what is not? There were, of course, a great many other instances of non-violent resistance around the world. I've pointed to civil rights movement. There's obviously the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, notice I didn't say Nelson Mandela there because I have serious misgivings about whether he should be viewed. I think there were other great figures. Uh, you know, Chief Albert Luthuli would be the principal figure uh, in the history of non-violent resistance in South Africa. Obviously, the anti-nuclear movements in the US and UK I'm um, thinking of the Berrigan brothers, um, Dorothy Day. I'm thinking of green movements, all of which owe a great deal to Gandhi and to his. The Green Party is certainly an idea which has had a much more expansive understanding of Gandhi. So for them, it, Gandhi is not simply the prophet of nonviolence. He is also the prophet of this whole critique of industrial modernity. That is the very framework of civilization in which we live today. And then there are figures such as Bhatsha Khan, uh, which I'm sure very few of you in this room have ever heard of. I, bring, I mention him in particular because there is a view in the US which I do not share. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm actually a strict non-believer personally. Right? But there is a view, and I think I need to critique that view. And that view is that Islam is completely incompatible with the idea of nonviolence. I think that's entirely incorrect. Entirely incorrect. And one of the greatest prophets and architects of nonviolent resistance in world history is a man called Bhatshah Khan, who was a Pathan. The Pathans are the same people, by the way, who from whom the ranks of the Taliban have now been drawn. And he created an entire army called the Kudai, Kidmatkars, the servants of God. So these people would actually dress in uniforms, but it was a non-violent army. And the British were terrified because the only thing that terrified them more, 
okay? Then a violent Pathan, because the very picture of a Pathan was violence. You know, if you read popular representations of Afghanistan, land of violence and all of that, the only thing that terrified them more than a violent Pathan was a non-violent Pathan. You know, they simply didn't know what to do with that beast, if I may put it this way. Right? And that's why Bhatshah Khan posed an enormous challenge, right? But uh, there are other parts of the world where one can find that as well, right? So I've already gone over this. I'm suggesting to you that we have to have an, an understanding which is both expansive and at the same time attentive to some particulars of the sort that I've given you, right? And this is just a quotation. Uh, don't really need to enter into the moment where Gandhi is, dwells on why passive resistance and nonviolence are not at all the same thing, all right? Um, this is, a, let me end with this little cartoon here. Uh, you know that both Martin Luther King and of course Gandhi, both of them were assassinated. And this is a cartoon that appeared in the uh, Chicago Sun Tribune. Uh, and uh, Gandhi here says, the odd thing about assassins, Dr. King, is that they think they've killed you. The specter of Gandhi in India is all over the place, particularly at this juncture when the government of India is being presided over by people who really are the assassins of Gandhi, if I may say so. You have a Hindu nationalist government in power, right? But, of course, people like King and Gandhi have to be assassinated repeatedly. This is what this cartoon is about, all right? And so here, uh, for if you, there is any further interest in these matters and some of the points that I made over here today, uh, you can easily follow some of these points at much greater length if you go to my, I have a YouTube channel where the entire course on Gandhi is available on YouTube without charge. It's in playlists and all of that. And you can find a number of other sources as well. Thank you very much. You've been listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thanks, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.